I would be faithful uh, to the text, that uh, you would uh, communicate to us, that we would be encouraged, convicted, that we would be built up uh, for having read and, and heard from Second Corinthians. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you're just joining us for the first time, Pastor Paul, who, as you've heard, is in Egypt. He's, he's currently finishing up preaching through the Gospel of John. We're, we're nearing the end of our time in the Gospel of John. Uh, so this morning, we're going to be starting a, a new uh, intermittent sermon series. We like to pair our main series with a series from the opposite uh, uh, testament. And so since Paul is finishing up John and he's going to be in the Old Testament next, we wanted to start a, a New Testament text for our intermittent sermon series. So we're going to be starting uh, the book of 2 Corinthians. So it's a great time to be here for the first sermon in 2 Corinthians. Uh, like all books of the Bible written by Paul the Apostle, it's, it's not a book in the classic sense of the word. It's actually a letter, a letter that Paul writes to the church in the city of Corinth. Now, it, it, 2 Corinthians is perhaps Paul's rawest letter. It is his most transparently uh, emotional letter. Paul is very transparently joyful and relieved in the first part, and he's clearly angry and frustrated in the second Paul wrote quite intensely to the Galatians, but in 2 Corinthians and in 1 Corinthians, you get a little more of I statements from Paul. He lets you uh, more into his inner thought life, inner emotional life. And this is not dispassionate theological discourse by any stretch of the imagination. This is highly personal communication. It reveals Paul's inner thought life and how he applied the gospel in various situations, including very distressing situations, very difficult interpersonal situations. Since it's our, our first uh, sermon, it'll probably be helpful to start with a summary of Paul's history uh, with the Corinthians. Though the adage can be pressed too far, it has been helpfully stated that the Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us. Uh, which is to say, in order to grasp all that God intends for us to grasp in 2 Corinthians, it would be helpful for us to understand the historical context. Now, most of this, is, you, this doesn't mean you're dependent on, on historical scholars or secular scholars. Most of the historical context is, in fact, contained uh, within the New Testament itself. Most of what we'll, we'll do here now just comes from the various letters that Paul has written, both First and Second Corinthians, other references he makes in his other uh, letters, as well as the history recorded us uh, for uh, in Acts. So what we're just going to do is uh, take that, synthesize that, and present it now so that we can have it in uh, the background of our mind as we begin to trek our way through Second uh, Corinthians. In Corinth, the city, was uh, strategically placed uh, on an isthmus in southern Greece. If you know, I'm not a geography person. Like, I have to be told that. But strategically placed in, in southern Greece. Smack dab in the middle of both land and sea trade routes. Right? So that means it was a very diversely populated city. Settlers came from all over the Roman Empire to live there. And Paul first planted a church in Corinth towards the end of his second missionary journey. Right? It would have been sometime around 50 A.D. He spent about two years there, just under two years. And some of the Jews tried to run him out of town, but he pressed on. And when he finally did leave, so he planted the church in Corinth, he, he labored there. And when he finally did leave, the church begged him to stay. Uh, but he, he, he had to move on, but he promised that he would return, Lord willing. The Corinthian church, though, after Paul left, was fraught with difficulties, famously so, right? People today know the Corinthian church as the bad church in the New Testament, 
right? The Galatian church gets a harsh letter too, but the ups and downs of the church in Corinth tend to be more famous for the variety and kind of the scandalous nature of all the troubles that we, we read in these letters. And now, the titles, First and Second Corinthians, potentially misleading because Paul wrote at least four letters, four letters that we know about to the Corinthians. First Corinthians references an earlier letter that he had written that we don't have, and Second Corinthians references a letter after First Corinthians that we don't have. So at least four letters. And you understand that after Paul left Corinth the first time, right? So he left Corinth the first time, and he heard of all these troubles that began to brew after he left, going on back in the church. And so he writes a letter to the Corinthians that we don't have, uh, addressing uh, them, addressing some of the troubles. He tells them, among other things, that they should refrain from associating with professing believers who engage in open, unrepentant uh, sexual immorality. And we, we know that the Corinthians kind of misunderstood Paul on this point. They, they kind of understood him to be instructing them to disengage from the world uh, completely. And then there were some other issues that sparked further correspondence. The Corinthians sent word to Paul. They asked him some more questions. It became clear to Paul that, okay, they're not understanding what I said the first time, and now they've got all these other issues, so uh, I'm going to need to address this. So he writes uh, our first Corinthians to address these issues. And then Paul, after he writes 1 Corinthians, he sends Timothy to check up on the Corinthians. Uh, and things are not going so well, right? Uh, Paul himself comes. Things weren't going well, so Paul himself comes. And this second time that Paul comes, he describes as a very painful visit. Things go even less well at the church with Paul there in person, right? He heard things were going so bad, I need to make a personal trip there. And then he goes, and things are just kind of worse, uh, he was, Paul was attacked by an individual within the church, and the congregation did not support Paul in that situation, at least as far as we can tell. And Paul had actually previously planned to make two trips to the Corinthians on this, this current missionary trip. He was going to stop by the Corinthians, hopefully patch things up, give them some instruction, go on to Macedonia, then make his way back to the Corinthians a second time. But things went so bad that he canceled that second trip. He decided not to go uh, to Corinthians uh, for that third visit. And then, uh, in response to all that, Paul writes what he calls his severe letter, his severe letter to them. We don't, ha- we don't have it. We can only imagine what was in this letter because, I mean, a good deal of the two letters that we do have, I would describe as pretty severe. Uh, so if Paul describes this letter at, like, Second Corinthians isn't my severe letter. I wrote to you a severe letter. You know he, he wasn't pulling any punches in that missive. We do know in that letter that Paul called the church to discipline his attacker, and to distance themselves from the unjust and foolish criticism that he is hurling at Paul, to reaffirm their affection for Paul and uh, their support of his ministry. Paul called them to do that in his severe letter. And then sometime later, Paul hears news from Timothy, or from Titus, concerning how the Corinthians received his severe letter. Paul was, Paul was kind of on edge about how that was going to go. In fact, he was so anxious for that news that he left a city where he had gospel opportunity. He mentioned, like, I had gospel opportunity in this city, but I left there because I I needed to go find Titus. I wanted to hear how things were going uh, at Corinth. And to Paul's great encouragement, he finds out that the Corinthians responded well. They were zealous to demonstrate their affection and loyalty. They punished the offender, and they reaffirmed their commitment to Paul and his ministry. Though it also becomes clear, either from Titus or from some later messengers, that now there were some outside false teachers who had come to the scene, new, new false teachers that were challenging Paul's ministry, that were attacking it. 
And so Paul writes 2 Corinthians in response to all of that, right? The good news of their response to his discipline as well as these new false teachers. He expresses his joy at the Corinthian repentance and he further defends his ministry and he addresses some of the claims of these false prophets. So that's just kind of a, a broad overview and we'll recall this background and touch on more of the specifics as, we, as they become relevant as we make our way through the sermon series. But for now, the, this sketch should hopefully be helpful and sufficient just to jump into the first part of the letter. So I invite you now to turn to 2 Corinthians if you're not all there already. We're going to be looking at... Uh, Right at the beginning, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. I invite you to keep your Bible open for this. Uh, As one commentator says, Paul's uh, logic in these verses is not uh, transparent, which is to say, Paul says each individual statement Paul makes is is relatively clear, but the way he fits them all together uh, is complex. And so we want to pay attention to how Paul fits these things uh, together and and what's to be gained from that. So please do keep your text open the entire time. Let's begin by by reading it together, and then we'll make our way through. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. The letter opens in the usual Pauline way, which is the usual way for the day. It starts with the senders, identifies the senders, and then the recipients. And now Paul always makes a great effort, even in these formalities, or it might just seem as formalities to us, to highlight great, important theological truths. In just identifying himself and Timothy as the senders and the Corinthians as the recipients with an initial greeting, Paul manages to highlight his uh, apostleship, its divinely appointed nature, the sainthood of all believers, the treasure of grace and peace in the gospel, and even the deity and lordship of Jesus Christ. We're not going to unpack all these things uh, this morning. Every time we've preached through a a Pauline epistle, we note how much there is in the greetings. Uh, So maybe someday we'll just do a sermon series on Paul's letter introductions. But understand that Paul is is not uh, wasting words here. But what's unique about 2 Corinthians, so Paul always does this, he always starts with the introduction, but what's unique about 2 Corinthians is how Paul follows this greeting with a rather unusual doxology, unusual praise or thanksgiving. It's common for letters of the day to follow the initial greetings with a statement of thanksgiving uh, about the recipients, right, to praise them in some way, like, I'm so grateful for you because of X, Y, or Z, right, like other people did, secular people did that. That was very common in the way people wrote letters. Paul was no stranger to this, right? Most of his letters included a thanksgiving, but it was always explicitly to God, right? He would thank God for his recipients, for some grace in his recipients. We thank God for the Philippians, thank God uh, uh, for Titus, right? To express uh, to grati- gratitude to the Lord, some feature in the church or individual he was writing to. 
And Paul would always, it wasn't random, right? Paul would always pick something that would anticipate and lay the groundwork for whatever the main reason Paul was writing to, right? Whatever the main topic was, Paul would work that into his kind of formula, what was seemed like just a formality, right? We always give a thanksgiving. Paul would work his main topic into that thanksgiving, right? So 2 Corinthians is not unique in having a doxology, but it is unique in that rather than praising God for the Corinthians or something going on in their church, Paul focuses on what God has done in his own life and ministry. As always, there is a reason for this strategy. There is a reason for this slight change. Paul's praise of God in his own life is meant to serve the Corinthians and model a particular kind of service to them. We'll only see how this works as we make our way through it. As you read those five verses, three through seven, that comprise that opening doxology, it quickly becomes apparent that there is one thing dominating Paul's agenda, right? One thing motivating him that he wants to talk about. Maybe you miss it if you read casually, but probably you all didn't. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. I assume you hear it. It's, it's kind of hard to read. It's one of those cases where like, man, the word comfort starts to sound weird because I'm saying it so often, right? This isn't one of those cases where you have to wonder, oh, what's the main idea? Paul isn't being uh, uh, vague here. He isn't uh, beating around the bush. We don't need any complex interpretive strategies. There's a pretty obvious key word. This opening doxology. Hard to miss when comfort occurs ten times in five verses. And then, of course, the related afflictions slash sufferings occur seven times, right? So that's 17 times in five verses that Paul addresses the issue of comfort. It's all about comfort. Comfort from God, comfort for Paul, and comfort for the Corinthians. So let's let's meditate. We can park there on this, this comfort. When we think comfort, right, we think console to help someone in their suffering, just generally speaking. Now, you console, you, you help people, you comfort in two ways, broadly speaking, right? There are two ways, broadly speaking, that we comfort. You can console with words in the sense of you help someone endure their sufferings emotionally, psychologically. You comfort someone psychologically, right? The circumstances that cause their suffering don't change, but you comfort them in the midst of those circumstances to be able to deal with them in their emotional response, to make their suffering less emotionally damaging. You know, like when the Ammonite king died that David was friendly with, when he died and David sent word to his son in order to comfort and console him, the scripture says, right? He, he couldn't bring the dad back, but he wanted to hopefully ease the burden of the loss psychologically for the son, that's the first type of comfort, consolation. But the second way you comfort is by alleviating, right? You can comfort by actually addressing the circumstances that are causing the pain and distress, right? The way a nurse might comfort a patient by helping them change positions to alleviate pain on one side of the body. 
In other words, you can comfort objectively. So this comfort psychologically, you can comfort objectively. You can actually change circumstances. Comfort in the sense of making someone more comfortable. For instance, when Luke says that Simon, the righteous man, was waiting for the consolation of Israel, some of your texts might say it's the same exact word there, the comfort of Israel. He was waiting for the comfort of Israel. He doesn't mean that Simon was waiting for just encouragement in their uh, distress, you know, some psychological ease of burden or relief. The comfort of Israel is basically synonymous with the salvation of Israel, right? Simon was waiting for God to intervene and for the people to be completely delivered from their Roman oppressors. And this is the second type of consolation where the circumstances are actually addressed and changed. In fact, maybe more often than not in the Old Testament, comfort focuses on that objective comfort. Like when God says famously in Isaiah, I am he who comforts you. That's directly in response to the call, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord, act, act for me. The prophet goes on, was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea away for the redeemed of the Passover, to pass over? So he looks back to salvation in the past. He says, you did all these things. Please act again. And in response to that, God answers and says, yes, I, I am he who comforts you. In other words, I am the one who will act, the one who will save you. That's why Paul parallels in, in the two in, verses, uh, in verse 6, if you see, comfort and salvation. Right? There's more than just emotional, internal comfort happening. We'll, we'll do more in verse 6 in a moment. Right? So you have comfort in the consoling sense, right? with two subsenses. Consolation by words, sympathy, psychological comfort in the midst of distress. And you have consolation by action that changes the circumstances, that removes the distress, Objective, consolation. But in the New Testament, the word underlying comfort here is also used with another nuance that's easy to miss if you don't read carefully, just because of uh, our English. The word is used with the sense uh, of more like to embolden, uh, closer to the ways we might use to encourage. To help not just alleviate someone's suffering emotionally, but to equip them to be able to deal with their sufferings or to complete the task that is causing their sufferings without giving up, right? Like you might say, I encouraged my son to work hard at school. You wouldn't say I comforted my son to work hard at school. We don't usually use comfort in English that way. But, but it is behind the idea of comfort in our text here, right? Equipping, strengthening. It's a slight twist on both the psychological and the objective senses, right? You can strengthen someone subjectively and objectively, you might encourage your child to work hard in school with words aimed at helping them emotionally. You might encourage your char child to work hard at school by buying them the proper tools they need to study. It's an important nuance to comfort that is definitely operating here in the way that Paul uses this word in context. In fact, in next week's passage, we'll see Paul describes himself as being comforted in such a way that it teaches him to rely on Christ and not himself. Right? That's not just him being emotionally consoled, that's him actually being strengthened, being trained in the faith, learning, growing, in order to press on and actually complete the work of ministry the right way. When Paul says that God comforts him, he has in mind both the psychological and the objective comfort, and he has in mind consolation and emboldening, strengthening, equipping. That's what God does. So now, Let's look back at verse 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, 
The God who strengthens, the God who objectively alleviates, who helps us psychologically endure, who comforts us in all our affliction. God is a God who strengthens Paul to endure and consoles Paul while he endures, equips Paul during all his afflictions, during all afflictions. What are the afflictions that Paul's talking about? When we first read God comforts us in all our afflictions, we could read that as an inclusive we, right? Like all of us, as in me, the writer, you, the reader, all of us. In, in all our afflictions, God is a God of comfort. But it becomes clear in the whole section that Paul is actually distinguishing between himself and, and maybe his other ministry partners and the Corinthians, right? If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort. So there, there's two comforts happening. There's two afflictions. There's, there's the comfort I'm receiving, and then there's your comfort. And they're separate. They're related, but they're separate. Right? So the afflictions, they're related, but they're separate. So the all afflictions in verse 3 is, is limited. What's, what's in view is Paul's experience specifically right now. That, that's what's in view, Paul's experience. And he does use that, that comprehensive designator all to let you know he has lots of things in mind. Paul has suffered all sorts of afflictions, right? It's not one-time comfort that Paul has experienced from God. This is how God is. This is how he has been, and this is how he will be. This is who God is. Paul himself had ample time to learn this aspect about God. He had many, many afflictions. In fact, Paul describes a variety of specific afflictions, or he alludes to them uh, in the remainder of the letter at, at various points. It includes both physical afflictions, like beatings, Illness that Paul suffered, as well as emotional afflictions, such as the intense personal strife between him and the Corinthians. There was a, a significant affliction, the, his situation with the Corinthians, the betrayals that he felt. At two different points, he gives kind of bullet lists, summarizing you know, just some of his afflictions, mentioning hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. And another point, he says, weakness, insults, persecutions, calamities. We know what Paul has in mind, these various emotional and physical sufferings. But he also calls these all afflictions, these various emotional, physical things that he has suffered, that he has in mind, Christ's sufferings, right? At the beginning of verse 5, he says, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. So all my sufferings, Paul is saying, these, these sufferings that I'm envisioning, these physical things that I've suffered, these emotional things that I've suffered in the course of the ministry, he also calls them Christ's sufferings. What does he mean by calling them Christ's sufferings? He could mean that his sufferings are like Christ's sufferings. They're the same type of sufferings that Christ suffered. Right? We, we've been reading through the Gospel of John. We've heard just recently how Jesus was falsely accused, rejected by those whom he was serving, undergoing physical beatings. We also saw that Jesus suffered material lack and persecution throughout his earthly ministry, leading up to his trial and crucifixion. So Paul's sufferings certainly were like Christ's. I mean, Peter says in his first epistle that Christ is an example to us in suffering. For him to be an example presumes we're going to undergo similar things. There's probably more to it than that. There's probably another dimension. Paul is also suffering for Christ. He suffers not just like what Christ suffered. Paul is suffering for Christ, on account of Christ. Paul was undergoing his rejection and his beatings because he was a follower of Christ and preacher of the gospel. He wouldn't have most of these sufferings if he wasn't a Christian. 
So it could be that Paul means that these sufferings are the things that one suffers because they follow Christ, and therefore they are Christ's sufferings, the sufferings that come with being in Christ. That's certainly one step closer. That, that's true. But there, there is another dimension to this idea in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we see that Christ identifies with his followers who suffer for his sake, right? He, he identifies with them such that their sufferings are his sufferings, not just in an example and not just uh, by causation, right? At the judgment, Jesus said that he will condemn the sinners with these words, the unrepentant with these words, whatever you did not do for the least of these, my brethren, you did not do for me. Paul himself has a very good reason to think this way. Remember, when Paul met the risen Lord, Back when he was a violent opponent of the faith, what did Jesus say? Why are you persecuting me? To be a Christian involves suffering for Jesus, and Jesus identifies with his people in their suffering. So Paul's sufferings were for Jesus and were in Christ's mercy, Christ's own sufferings, as he identified with Paul. And note that some of what Paul would call Christ's sufferings, right, his afflictions, weren't directly caused by his ministry. A lot of them were, but some of them weren't. But they were ministry adjacent, right? Things that made serving Christ harder, such as illness or personal tragedy. Jesus identified with Paul even in those. And this is especially important. Many of those sufferings that were directly related to the ministry were not from outside the church. Meaning, some of the suffering that Paul has in mind, very obviously has in mind, he mentions that he calls Christ's sufferings are not just persecution, not just rejection by this world, not just suffering because the outside world doesn't like that I'm a Christian, right? Many of what Paul has in mind, many of these sufferings that he calls Christ's sufferings are also the inner relational turmoils and difficulties that come from life together in the church. The Corinthians were the source of much of Paul's afflictions, much of Christ's sufferings in his life. But Paul praises God because his afflictions were not the end of the story. God comforted Paul in all his afflictions. That's who God is. But how does he do this? How did he do this? Does Paul have anything specific in mind that God does to comfort him? What was Paul thinking when he said, God has comforted me in all my afflictions? Well, we know, as Paul will mention, there are all sorts of ways that Paul understands that God consoled him both psychologically and delivered him objectively during the course of his ministry. There were all sorts of providences, right? He saves Paul from certain death on a number of occasions. Paul mentions that in 2 Corinthians. Paul also mentions how God sent Titus to him to comfort him. He uses the same word, God sent Titus to comfort me. That's an objective occurrence in his life, right? God helped Paul in his circumstances. He provided Paul the various things he needed psychologically and objectively in order to accomplish the ministry that he had called Paul to. He strengthened him for it. He helped him along the way. So we have all these little providences in Paul's life that like, oh yeah, those are the comfort, the ways that God comforted, all these little providences that God comforted Paul with. But Paul says something more global in these opening verses, right? Look again at verse 5. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ... We share abundantly in comfort too. Paul says that the comfort comes 
through Christ. The comfort he has in mind comes through Christ. This is the crux of all of Paul's theology. We have to understand this if we're going to understand everything else that Paul does in this letter, indeed in, in all his letters. What does it mean that it is through Christ that Paul is comforted in his afflictions? Right? He could have said, I was comforted by God taking care of me, by him sending Titus, by him letting me escape the crowds. But he says, I, the comfort comes through Christ. Right? We already know that the afflictions that Paul has in mind come primarily from or in conjunction with his service to Christ. So first, consider that equivalence that Paul gives us in verse 5. He says, as, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. In other words, Paul is saying there that comfort has to accompany the affliction that he has in mind. The nature of the affliction being Christ's affliction necessitates also a share in comfort. One does not come without the other. To genuinely suffer for Christ and in service to Christ is going to necessarily involve comfort. But notice, Paul does not just say, as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so we also share abundantly in Christ's comfort, right? It's not a perfect parallel in the verse. He doesn't use an exact parallel statement. The second half is worded to highlight that phrase, through Christ. The comfort comes through Christ. Now, through Christ is almost a technical phrase in Paul's writings. It refers to the fullness of the gospel. It is like the shortest shorthand for the gospel, which is to say it is Paul's way of highlighting what Jesus objectively accomplished in his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his intercession in heaven. It's Paul's way of citing the fullness of the gospel in very, very shorthand. You see this throughout Paul's writings. Read just a few few places in his letter. So that as sin, Paul writes, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul writes, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, by what Jesus has accomplished. We have confidence toward God through Jesus Christ. All of this from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. In Ephesians, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Timothy, he poured out the Holy Spirit on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Through Christ, right? He redeemed us through Christ. He gives us eternal life through Christ. We have confidence to God through Christ. We are reconciled through Christ. We've been adopted through Christ. We have the Holy Spirit through Christ. God receives glory through Christ. In other words, when Paul says through Christ, he means by, he means, by means of all that Jesus did in the gospel, his life, death, his incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension, intercession in heaven. That's why suffering, the suffering of Christ goes together with the comfort. That's why Paul closes so confidently in verse 7. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Because if the Corinthians experience the sufferings of Christ, they will experience the comfort. As we mentioned, to suffer for Christ means that you have been identified with him. Not just that you identify with him, but that he identifies with you. To suffer for Christ means that Jesus identifies with you. 
And that's so much more important than just Jesus feels your pain, right? Like, oh, I feel your pain. I love you. I care about you. So when you're hurt, I hurt, right? It's bigger than that. That's there, but it's bigger than that. For Jesus to identify with us means that we are citizens of his kingdom, that we belong to him, that we are beneficiaries of all that he did. For a king to identify with a person is for that person to be a citizen. To truly suffer for Christ and in the midst of service to Christ is to belong to him. And so for Paul, that necessitates comfort because of who Christ is and what he has done, because of what the gospel is. It's to say, the very nature of the gospel, the good news, its, it's very nature brings comfort Paul believes this because of what the gospel is, a message of comfort in the strongest sense of the word, right? Because remember the two dimensions of comfort, the psychological and the objective. The gospel is the message of Jesus, the triumph of Jesus' kingdom, his victory over sin and death, and ultimately the hope for eternal life for all his people. The gospel is the message of the eternal life that comes through his life, death, resurrection, through the things that Jesus has done for his people. That is the ultimate objective Comfort, right? To be able to personally lay hold of that is the ultimate psychological comfort, to say, that's mine. Paul means very intentionally for his readers to understand that the comfort of Christ is not just like a vague sense of the Holy Spirit calming your spirit, right? It's something that originates in and from the objective reality, the objective truth of the gospel. That's why he says it's through Christ. Your comfort comes through Christ, that he uses that loaded Pauline term, his shorthand for the gospel, who Jesus was and what he achieved. So we have comfort in the objective sense because Jesus died for our sins, gifted us his righteousness, earned us a place in his kingdom, And he is coming again to establish that kingdom in all its fullness, right? The consolation, the comfort of Israel that Simon looked forward to. The final alleviation of all things and situations that cause suffering and affliction for his people. And Christians have comfort in the psychological sense because the reality of the gospel helps assuage the believer in the midst of afflictions. It consoles and it also encourages. It strengthens them to press on. Now, then we, we, we put the two pieces together. Because what does it mean then that God's comfort comes through the gospel, it comes objectively through the gospel, it comes psychologically through the gospel, and that God did all sorts of specific providences for Paul that gave him comfort? How do those two things fit together? How is Titus showing up at just the right time, comfort through Christ in the Pauline sense? A kind providence isn't the gospel, right? Like that, how, how do those work? Now, we have to remember that Christ's kingdom has, when we say in theological lingo, an already dimension, right? Christ's kingdom is already and not yet, which is to say Jesus has definitively earned the kingdom for his people. He has established it, but he has not consummated it yet, right? It's not here in its fullness. That's still future. But it is established established now in the present, and it does break in to the present, There there are so many joys and foretastes of the heavenly reality now, here, in the present, in the church, in your walk with Christ. So many little kindnesses and mercies from God. To be a Christian is not all affliction. We are both consoled and encouraged, emboldened, strengthened by the inbreaking of the gospel hope into the present. 
The Christian life is full of all sorts of little tastes of heavenly glory, little deliverances, kindnesses, inbreaking of the kingdom, demonstrations of God's faithfulness and provision. Paul mentions some of them, like how God delivered him from death, how Titus visited him at the right moment. But those are only the comfort God intends when they are understood rightly, right? They don't grant the full comfort God intends unless they are understood in light of the gospel, unless they are understood in that Pauline theological way as inbreaking of the kingdom into the present, as little foretastes of heavenly glory. There will one day be a full future deliverance, and all of the little deliverances help point forward to the greater deliverance and help sustain believers internally for running the race. But if the little deliverance is an end in and of itself, it doesn't point you forward. It isn't the comfort that God designs for it to be. The objective reality of the future kingdom encourages the believer, and the kingdom breaking into the present, the gift of the Spirit, the work of sanctification, the little provision and kindnesses that God showers on us all our lives, those encourage the believer too because they are reminders tangible evidence of the gospel accomplished, and they are foretastes of the gospel finished. And if you don't understand them that way, they won't be what they're supposed to be. That's why the gospel, is, uh, the gospel fundamentals are so important throughout all of Paul's letters as he addresses all sorts of issues. It's why the gospel should be fundamental to our life together as a church. There is no comfort in the objective sense apart from the gospel. The only ultimate objective comfort is the future kingdom of God coming in all its fullness. And to be comforted in the psychological sense is directly connected to how well we understand the gospel. The more you know it, the more you understand it, the more you recognize it and interpret your whole life correctly, and so it, you will experience the subjective comfort of Christ. To be comforted by God, in Paul's mind, is through Christ. That is, through knowing the gospel and interpreting all of life and all of God's kindnesses through that gospel lens. So now, let's look back at verse 4. Take all that and notice something else very important that Paul says about God's comfort. Verse 4, he gives us a purpose statement. God comforts us so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. God comforted Paul so that he could comfort the Corinthians. And Paul's repetitive about it, right? Like you read the verses, God comfort us so that we will comfort you with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. He does a little sandwich of repetition. In other words, God is going to comfort the Corinthians, and he's going to do that by Paul. One of the primary reasons in this passage, at least, that God comforted Paul is so that the Corinthians would then experience the same comfort. In fact, Paul goes a step further back, and he says that his afflictions even were for the sake of their comfort and salvation. Right? Look in verse 6. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort. So God's purpose in afflicting and comforting Paul was so that the Corinthians would experience comfort and salvation. And hopefully now it's especially apparent why Paul would pair those two together. Because for Paul, the comfort of God is the comfort of the gospel, the saving message of Jesus Christ. And his afflictions came from, or in conjunction with Paul's act of spreading, his teaching, his reminding of the gospel message. Paul was literally suffering to bring them the gospel message. He was suffering to bring them comfort. He was afflicted for their comfort. Paul was afflicted in his ministry, and he was comforted so that he could better understand the gospel himself and so teach it and share it with the Corinthians. 
He was afflicted in the very act of sharing the gospel with the Corinthians, and he was comforted by the gospel realities even as he was afflicted, all so that he could remind so that he could be reminded to keep those gospel realities front and center in all of his ministry to the Corinthians and so serve their comfort, right? They're, they're not going to get comfort apart from the gospel. And so Paul was suffered. Paul was driven more and more to the gospel so that he could actually have the only thing that would bring comfort to the Corinthians, the gospel. Now, this has an important ramification for our understanding of our life together as Christians. And God is the ultimate source of comfort because comfort comes from the gospel, Comfort comes through Christ. But comfort also comes for the Corinthians here through Paul. God comforts the Corinthians. Paul comforts the Corinthians. He, apply, he applies the gospel through Paul. So the Corinthians experience comfort from the gospel by means of Paul. Paul being able to teach it to them, help them meditate on it, apply it, view that all of that happens in their life in light of the gospel. God's people are one of the means that God uses to comfort his people. God comforts his people with his people. This is because the ultimate comfort comes through the gospel and God has ordained for his people to teach and remind and build each other up in the gospel, in the truth. Paul says in Ephesians, God uses us to help each other know Jesus better and understand life in Jesus and to be excited for the future with Jesus. Paul tells the Corinthians, they're going to suffer too. They already were, but more was on the way. Paul knew. More persecution from without. More difficulties from within. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Right? This is going to be applied theology for you, Paul says. You will be comforted but you experience comfort in the midst of suffering, right? Comfort's not really, un, not really intelligible apart from suffering. You're going to suffer the same sufferings. And it's through them where you identify with Jesus and him with you that you will know God's comfort. In other words, that the gospel will become clearer to you, that it will become more real. Our suffering for Christ is the context in which we apprehend the good news, the fullness of everything that Jesus did and everything that he is. That's the, our suffering for Christ is the context in which we grow in our understanding of the person of Christ, in which we are equipped to, to teach the gospel and to share it with others. And there's, there's more we could say about all this, but for now we'll close with some direct applications to ourselves. Some direct applications in light of everything Paul has said about comfort in this opening doxology. Number one, understand that you will suffer for Christ. You are going to suffer Externally and internally. Externally, the world will reject you. You might even have varying degrees of physical suffering for Christ. You may experience actual physical persecution or, or maybe illness because you went where others would not. But here, let's focus on internal sufferings because th those actually tend to be at the forefront of all of Second Corinthians, right? Internal sufferings like Paul had with the Corinthians. Some of your suffering, right? You're, you're going to suffer. And some of your suffering in the Christian life will come from without. The world will reject you. But some of your sufferings will come from within as you have to love and be loved by sinful people in the church. People in the church will let you down. They will betray you, be unfair to you, fail to be there for you when you need them. You will experience internal suffering. 
We are broken sinners and getting us all so close together, as close as God commands us to be, living life together, being one body, means that we will be in close quarters and therefore we will hurt each other. Understand that this is a part of church life in the fallen world. You should expect that. Don't be surprised and don't remove yourself from the church because you have a wrong expectation. Don't have a, an idealized view of the church that kind of expects everyone else to be sinless except for you, right? Like you always put that in parentheses, except for me. Too often when we have any sort of problem at church, we leave. Paul had serious problems with the Corinthians, but that wasn't the end of the relationship. That was just an occasion for suffering for Christ. Number two, understand that God will comfort you. Oh, praise God, he will comfort you. Paul's trouble with the Corinthians was an occasion of suffering for Christ, but it was also the context of being comforted through Christ. The more you remove yourself from an imperfect church, the more you cut yourself off from the gospel in Christ. You actually cut yourself off from comfort. Oh, you might think that you aren't, uh, but if you church hop, you, you constantly leave because of this or that imperfection, you'll never develop deep relationships in Christ. You'll never have people really applying the gospel to you in a meaningful or specific way. You'll never have the opportunity to hear them apply the gospel to the deepest parts of their life. Oh, God will comfort you with the gospel. The reality of the future reward and the glories that are coming will help you endure and do the work in the present. You can suffer for Christ now for the glories of the new heavens and the new earth. Oh, you can endure rejection by the world for the prospect of heaven. You can muscle through difficult relationships in the church for the prospect of running on the golden streets of the New Jerusalem. Number three, real Christian comfort only comes through Christ, that is, from the gospel. The objective reality of the gospel and the subjective apprehension of the gospel. Right, if you want to know the comfort of God, that comes from knowing the gospel. The individual providences, the kind providences of God's life removed from the gospel do not have their full effect. Right? The comfort of God does not come from some mystical experience of Zen that the Spirit just zaps you with. Right? You draw closer to Jesus. You know the gospel better. Comfort is through Christ. You do that through the word that reveals the gospel. The Bible is the means of knowing Jesus and thus making it possible to experience the comfort of God. We experience comfort from God through knowing Christ, his work, his coming kingdom, through the scriptures that you will be able to lay hold of the things necessary to strengthen you for running the race, to be able to recognize the encouragements that God gives you along the way, to understand them as little foretastes of heavenly glory, all the little ways that the kingdom is already in breaking in your life. Your sanctification, God's mercies, you will know those better as you know the scriptures better, as you know Jesus better. So as, as sub-applications, have an individual quiet time. Work that into your life. Read the Bible. We also live in a time when, when this is incredibly convenient. Right? If you have any sort of commute in your life, you can listen to an audio Bible. I use the app called Dwell. It's, it's a great app. Well worth the cost. You can listen to the Bible. Pick up a Bible reading plan. So many different options, paces to choose from. We have so many different translations. If, if, if you struggle with a particular translation, pick an easier one for you to read. Don't, don't feel any shame about that. Pick one that you understand. Read the Bible. Be an active sermon listener. 
involves not just how you listen during a sermon, but how you prepare to hear a sermon, right? Read the sermon text ahead of time. Pray about it. Formulate questions. Don't come cold. Take advantages of other teachings from the church universal, right? We have all sorts of historical resources that have come down to us in the form of books, but also we have modern resources like recorded sermons from other faithful churches and pastors, conference talks, other teaching contexts. Don't go it alone, right? Take advantage of the group teaching available as time allows. Join Bible studies, book studies, start them. Meet together with others to help you be accountable to read, to help you understand what you read. Know Christ better and so know the comfort that comes through Christ. Application number four related to that. Comfort each other. God will comfort you, so comfort each other. Keep the gospel front and center in all of your relationships with each other. That's how you will be the means that God uses to comfort another person. You can be a vessel of God's comfort to another person. Share your understanding of the gospel. Apply the gospel to their lives as they share their lives with you. And probably more often than doing that, be quick to apply the gospel to your own life, right? Maybe be, be slow to always try to interject yourself into what they're sharing with you, but be quick to apply it to your own life as you share your life. Model interpreting your life in light of the gospel. Share all the ways that you have experienced God's mercies in the present and how they relate to God's coming kingdom as you understand it. When you interpret your life in a gospel-centered way, that will encourage your fellow believer. Help them to interpret their life in a gospel-centered way. And so no comfort that comes from God. Five, and finally, pray. Pray for each other's comfort. Our passage equips us to be more specific in our prayers. We need to pray for each other, specifically to be comforted through Christ. Right? We, it, it's okay to pray general prayers. Like you can pray, I pray, Lord, that you would comfort this person and just, just use that word. But when you can pray more specifically, do so. And since we understand what it means to be comforted through Christ a little better, we can go to the Lord for each other with very, very specific concrete prayers. We can pray, Lord, please help this person to be able to listen to the sermon undistracted this week. I know they've had a rough week. Help them to be able to set that all aside. Lord, please uh, give my friend faithfulness in their, their quiet time. Give them presence of mind as they read, comprehension. Help them not to zone out. Oh, Lord, let them enjoy their, their times of prayer with you. Lord, help my brother to be able to focus during worship, to be present even as I know there are many things that are worrying him. Help him to benefit from hearing your gospel in, in the singing, in the reading, in the praying, in the preaching. We can pray very specific prayers because we know what it means to experience God's comfort and how we do that. We will suffer in this life. We are guaranteed to if we are connected with Christ. But if we suffer for Christ, that means he has identified with us. And if he identifies with us, that means all the objective realities he has won for us are ours. And so Paul says, even to us now, our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you that you have not left us without comfort in this world, and we thank you for the gospel of your son Jesus. And we do pray that you would increase our our understanding, our joy in the gospel, increase our ability to, to view life in light of what Jesus has done and in light of the 
full consummation of your kingdom, that we might experience all the, the emotional relief and all the equipping and strengthening that that provides, that we might run the race well, and that we would grow in our ability to share that with others here in this church and outside with non-believers, that they might hear and recognize the comfort that only exists in Christ. Grant us to be faithful in all this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.